We are going to read from the Bible this morning. It is Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. That's our scripture text. So if you have your own Bible, I'd invite you to turn there now. You're welcome to, to do that. The words will be up on the screen uh, behind me, but uh, if you uh, would like to look at it in front of you, that's often helpful, I find at least. And um, if you don't have a Bible, there is a, there is a blue Bible that's in the uh, chair racks in front of you, and you'll find uh, this passage in Luke 20 on page 1,119. Now remember, uh, we are in uh, that part of Luke's account uh, where Jesus is, uh, has entered into his last week of earthly life. He's just entered into Jerusalem, uh, and he has been facing some pretty tough questions by the religious leaders of the city. And we saw that the, the first two questions that, uh, that came to him last week, questions about his authority, uh, his religious authority, uh, questions about, his, uh, about political authority, and he answered each of those. Now this week we have a group uh, of religious leaders that come to Jesus and they try to trap him in a, in a religious controversy, a theological question. But we'll also see, a little bit more fundamentally, it is a question ultimately about how one interprets the Bible. They come to him and they ask a question based on their preconceived notion of what the answer is, and they cite the Bible. And Jesus responds, and in his answer to them, he cites the Bible. And that should impress upon us what a sacred task it is for what we're doing right now. We need to be able to rightly interpret the Scripture. And so as I prayed a minute ago, I'd encourage you as I talk through the time of the, of the teaching to be praying for me and for us that we would rightly interpret, that we would rightly understand what we read, because it's not enough to just see the words on the page. These people who came to Jesus and challenged Him, they saw the words on the page, but they did not rightly understand it. So that's what we seek to do. Now let me ask you to stand if you're able as I read from Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. And as we're done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord and invite you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Luke chapter 20, starting at verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore... Whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. In the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any question. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. <clears throat> Last year, at the, end of the, at the end of the Supreme Court term last year, uh, Justice Stephen Breyer retired. 
Now, without comment on Justice Breyer and his legacy one way or the other, your opinion of uh, him is likely shaped by your opinion of the legal opinions he uh, authored. But the one thing that everyone agreed on, on all sides of the political spectrum, uh, and you saw this in the news coverage at his retirement, was that Stephen Breyer was the master in oral arguments before the Supreme Court of the silly hypothetical question. Right, now, now, kids, what's a hypothetical question? You know what a hypothetical question is? It's a question that, um, that tries to lead you to an answer based on a made-up story. It's like, let me, let, me, let me tell you a story, and based on that story, you're supposed to see my point, and then the question kind of comes at the end of it. That's, that's, what it, that's how it works. And Justice Breyer was famous for that. For example, in a 2000 case about trademark law, Breyer said as a preface to a question that he was asking one of the attorneys, he says, now imagine that you made a hairbrush in the shape of a grape. It's called a grape hairbrush. And then he proceeded to kind of ask his question based on this silly mental picture that he was painting for this attorney arguing before the Supreme Court of a grape hairbrush. Another time in a 2005 argument about the potential effects of a California drug law, he made up a scenario that involved a farmer near Boston who grew tomatoes that had a special property that when eaten would produce what he called tomato children, turn children into tomatoes. And he said, what would happen if these children of tomatoes, these tomato children became a menace to the city of Boston? Silly, right? Yeah. And some people argued that he would often take this kind of tendency to make up silly stories a little bit too far. But he told the Associated Press in 2008 that the reason why he kind of felt compelled to make up hypothetical situations like this is he's, he often has something that's worrying him, that's troubling him, that he's thinking about. And so he says sometimes it's easiest to do that, to think it through with an example. Well, here we have a matter that is worrying the Sadducees and Jesus, and, and, and they come to Jesus with this question about the resurrection. And they do it by making up a hypothetical situation, a silly example about a woman who has seven husbands who all die and leave her no children. And it's silly, like a grape hairbrush or tomato children taking over Boston. But the underlying issue is actually very serious. The underlying issues wouldn't have been that serious, would, would have been very serious or they wouldn't have been before the Supreme Court. This would, not be, this would, this would have to be a serious issue because they're bringing it to to Jesus. And the issue is whether there is anything that exists after this life is over. Now, that's a serious issue. The Sadducees' belief was that there wasn't. Jesus' belief was that there was. Both were reading, both were arguing from the same Bible, but only one was right. And knowing and believing the correct answer to the question is very important for how you live your life. So I want to look at this. Look at first the question that's being asked, and second, the answer. It's a very simple outline, <laughs> the question and the answer. It's very simple, but it's a very important topic to explore. Now, first, let's look at the question. Now, before I show you how universal I think this question is, how I think we all ask this question in one way or another, right, I want us to better understand the exact question that the Sadducees were asking and how they were asking it. First, let, we, it, it probably makes sense to consider for a minute, who are these Sadducees? Right, well, we have to be a little bit careful here because actually most of what we know about the Sadducees from ancient writing was written by those who were opponents of the, of the Sadducees. And so you always have to be careful when that happens because the opponents of a particular person are not always the best person to believe about their description of that person. But much as we 
know or don't know, this much seems certain. The Sadducees were one of the groups of the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus, and they probably held the majority of the seats in the Sanhedrin, which was kind of like the Supreme Court of ancient Israel. It was the highest court of interpretation for Jewish law. And so their party, the party of the Sadducees, controlled the legal system of the time, or at least this highest court. And they were made up of those from the priestly caste, which meant that their identity was primarily hereditary. In other words, in comparison to the other parts of the Jewish leadership, a Sadducee was born into their role, right? You could become a revolutionary zealot by political conviction. You could become a Pharisee by religious devotion. You could become a scribe by religious education. But you could really only become a Sadducee by birth which meant that the Sadducees were somewhat removed from the common people of the time. They were like the Jewish establishment, and they were more likely, therefore, to try to protect that position, that high position that they had, by collaborating with the Roman authorities, which placed them in a power of privilege, a a position of power, a position of privilege, that they probably wanted to maintain as much as possible. Now, when it came to their religious views, they were not nearly as as fanatical in their observance of the, of the Jewish law as the Pharisees were. In fact, they didn't like all the layers upon layers of extra laws that the Pharisees had, had added to, uh, to what they thought was appropriate Jewish observance. They thought only, the Sadducees thought only the, the sacred written text of Hebrew Scripture, what we would call the Old Testament, and probably even within that, specifically only the laws of Moses, the, the, the Torah, the, the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, that that was the only thing that should be respected and was valid. Now, we can actually find a degree of respect there. They believed that the, the inspired text of the Bible was the only final authority. Actually, though, the Sadducees didn't really believe a lot of what was written in the Scriptures to be to be true. They didn't really believe in the guiding providence of God, that He was sovereign over all things and guiding all things. Right? They didn't really have an anticipation of, the, of a promised Messiah. And what's most important to the discussion here, they did not believe in a resurrection from the dead, a life after this life. And so they go to Jesus, and they go all Stephen Breyer on Him. Right? They, they craft this hypothetical situation, and they put it to Jesus. And they say, Jesus, let's have a talk about the resurrection of tomato children. No. He says, let's have a talk. They say, let's have a talk about a woman who married a man and the man died before they had any children. And so the dead man's brother marries her. And the Sadducees, in kind of describing this, they cite the law of Moses. Specifically, it's Deuteronomy chapter 25 for a provision for a situation just like this. If a man dies without an heir, the man's brother was to marry his widow. And theoretically, this was to provide for the, provide for the widow's needs. It was a, a mechanism of provision. It was also a way to, to provide for the continuation of the brother's uh, estate. It was, a, it was to provide an heir for, for, for his name. And so, so that's why she gets another, another husband, because she didn't have a child by the, by the first. Now, in the situation, though, that the, the Sadducees bring to Jesus, the second brother dies too. And then the third before they have any children. And this happens seven times. One bride for seven brothers. Now, just a quick aside, I can't help but read this and think about what brothers six and seven must have been thinking after attending the funeral of brother five. I mean, imagine at the repast lunch after the fifth funeral, and this woman starts batting your eyes at, her eyes at you, 
smiling in their direction. I would have been on the first boat to Tarshish. You're getting out of there. But they don't. And they die too. The woman has had seven husbands. And the Sadducees think they have the perfect scenario to prove their point. So they ask in the resurrection Jesus, therefore, whose wife will she be? And they're probably snickering to themselves because they think they have crafted the perfect hypothetical. It backs Jesus into a corner. As if he would say, you know, now that you put it like that, this resurrection thing does sound kind of silly, doesn't it? You're right. There is no resurrection after all. Now, that's not what Jesus says, of course. We'll get to what he says in a minute. But before we do that, we have to admit that the Sadducees, while they may have had the wrong answer, they're asking a very right question. If we take them to be sincerely interested in the issue of the resurrection and whether it was true or not. Because that question, the what's next question after this life, is a question that we all ask. Now, maybe nobody has actually come up to you and said it in exactly those words, but it's a question that every human being has. What happens after we die? It's the right question. It's a question we all ask. And all the major religious systems of human history have always tried to answer this, often with some sort of a description or invention of what afterlife is like. The the Egyptians, that's why they built their pyramids. The Greeks had an elaborate understanding of their underworld. It's why Hollywood makes movies like Frank Capra's It's a Wonderful Life to Pixar's Soul. They all are wondering about what life after death looks like. Now, of course, there are some people who say that there's nothing, nothing at all. We just die and poof, nothing else. And, we, and, and, and that, that thought, that idea almost seems like it's a modern invention of the 20th century, but really that idea is just reviving the Sadducees, just taking their denial of the resurrection to its logical conclusion. Bertrand Russell British philosopher, considered by many to be one of the greatest minds of the 20th century. This is how he described his understanding of this life and the next. He said, there is darkness without, and when I die, there will be darkness within. No splendor, no vastness anywhere, only triviality for a moment, and then nothing. At least that's honest, isn't it? Depressing, but he's being honest about what he thinks. In fact, if that's what's next then we shouldn't be surprised about where that leads and how that affects how people live today. One of my my high school student sons observed at the dinner table a few weeks ago uh, that that the school district here in town has a staff position that is devoted to the prevention of suicide and and self-harm. Now, that's a very worthy goal, by the way. It's a huge issue in our culture right now, self-harm and suicide. But he observed that while they seek to rightly prevent people from harming themselves. Again, that's a good thing. They do this, and as they do it, they're affirming the value and the significance and the beauty of of human life, and while it's worth living, while at the very same time, he said, well, they're teaching us that we evolve from nothing, and when we die, we go to nothing. He said, Dad, they don't realize they're creating their own problem. That's very true. This summer, this coming summer, I want to do another Calvary conversation where we watch a movie together. We did that last summer. We watched a movie and then we talked about it. This summer, I want to watch the 2011 HBO film adaptation of Cormac McCarthy's play, The Sunset Limited. Um, the, The movie is all just one scene with two characters talking to one another about the meaning of life. Just one long scene and two characters. Uh, one character is named Mr. White, played by Tommy Lee Jones, and he's an atheist college professor who's in despair, he's hopeless, and he attempts to throw himself 
in front of a train, the Sunset Limited. All right? But he's saved, he's rescued, pulled off the tracks by the other character, Mr. Black, played by Samuel L. Jackson, who is a working poor ex-convict Christian who became a Christian while he was in prison. And the whole movie is just them debating the meaning of life. And in this one scene, the Tommy Lee Jones character is explaining to Mr. Black, the Samuel L. Jackson character, his view of the finality of death. He says, every road ends in death, every friendship, every love, torment, loss, betrayal, pain, suffering, age, indignity, hideous lingering illness, and all of it with a single conclusion. Again, more depression. But that's what we're taught. And we wonder that if that's our view of where life leads, why we have so much struggle with despair in this one. Now, of course, there are people who attempt to craft answers that will try to make us feel better. There are attempts to answer this question that we all ask. One of uh, the most famous, at his famous commencement speech at Stanford University, Steve Jobs, the founder of of, uh, the Apple computing empire, he called death a welcome change agent, right? We shouldn't fear death. We should welcome it as a change agent that clears out the old and brings in the new. In The Lion King, Mufasa, the wise uh, king uh, tells his son about the circle of life and how we die and when we die, you know, we go into the ground and we become food for the antelopes, as if this is supposed to comfort us. Is that, the, is that the best we can do? Is that the only answer we have? Or is there a better resurrection? Let's look at Jesus' answer. Verses 34 to 40, Jesus gives his answer. Now, it's worth spending a, a minute here on what Jesus says and how he says it as well. Right? We, we, we looked at the question, not just what the Sadducees were asking, but how they asked it. Well, let's look at how Jesus, not only how he answers the question, but the method that he goes about in, in answering it. The first thing he does is point out the flaw in the Sadducees' hypothetical. Right? He shows them that they don't understand the resurrection that they're denying. And so he says we need to start by better understanding the resurrection. And he says the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Right? But... In contrast, the resurrected neither marry nor are given in marriage because they can't die anymore, because they're equal to the angels, sons of God being sons of the resurrection. Now, there's a lot to unpack there, but the major point that Jesus is making is that in the hypothetical situation the Sadducees brought to him, they're assuming a greater degree of continuity between this life and the resurrection. In other words, they're assuming the resurrection it's going to be just like this life, only a lot longer. Incidentally, that's what, that's what Mr. White in the Sunset Limited assumed too. That's why he had no interest in the resurrection. He says, this is what, one of the things he says, he's eternal life, he said, good God. He said, show me a religion that prepares one for nothingness, prepares one for death. That's a church I might enter, he said. He said, yours, he's talking to the Christian, he said, yours prepares you for only more life, for dreams, for illusions, for lies. In other words, this life seems to stink Who in the world would want more of this? That's the same flaw the Sadducees were making. They were assuming that the next life just sort of continues in exactly the same way as they understood this one. But in Jesus' very short statement here, he makes a very important point about how we should understand the resurrection. It will be into a world and into an an existence that in very important ways will not be like this one. And, 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 and specifically, one of the major ways it will not be like this one is at the basis of their hypothetical question that they ask him. In, in his response, Jesus says, 
there will be no marriage in heaven. And that's the, that's the very basis of their question for trying to show how silly uh, this idea of the resurrection is. And that's how Jesus dismantles their hypothetical. He, he dismantles their premise. They ask Jesus about the woman who had married seven brothers and says, okay, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus says it's not going to be a problem. There's no marriage in heaven. Now, there's a few things you've got to say here because this either comes as a big discouragement to those of you who are happily married, or maybe a big relief to some of you who have struggled in marriages. But if you have a bad marriage, even if you welcome this news, you have a great marriage and you view this as a bummer in one way or the other, Jesus is not downplaying the importance of marriage. What he's doing is he's pointing out the very great truth about the point and the purpose of marriage here in this life. He's saying that there are two primary purposes of marriage in this life. The first, the production and the raising up of of offspring. And the second, pointing to the relationship that God has through Jesus Christ with His church. Both of those things will be unnecessary in the resurrection. The first purpose, not necessary, because at the resurrection, all those humans that God has ordained to be born will already be born. The second, because the signpost that points us to the relationship with Jesus will no longer be needed because the sign's no longer needed when you've actually arrived, when you're there. And that relationship with Christ, our eternal husband, will then be perfectly fulfilled. So that's the first thing we learn about the resurrection from Jesus and what he's saying. There's not going to be marriage in heaven because at least at that point, God will, gather, will have gathered all of his people into his presence and made it perfect. Now, second... We do see that Jesus says the resurrected will be equal to angels. Now, this doesn't mean, very importantly, that we become angels when we die. That's a very common but wrong understanding of what happens when we die. It's a wonderful life has something to do with that misunderstanding, right? We don't become angels, but we become like angels. Actually, it's just one word in the, in the Greek, a word that Luke may have invented. He may have coined the term in himself. It's basically angel-like. You'll be angel-like. Now, what does that mean? What's, what's an angel What's an angel like? Well, we know a couple things about angels that we know that they don't marry and, and reproduce. We've already covered that part about what the resurrected life will be like. But angels were also created to glorify God, to serve God. Now, that's our purpose as well. And we'll do that perfectly in the resurrection. We also know that unfallen angels, at least, don't sin, never sin, and neither will we after the resurrection. But perhaps, most importantly, angels are immortal. They cannot die. They will not die. And neither will we. The good news of the resurrection is life in a world where there is no more death. Right, think about that. There is a sense in which the reality of death casts a shadow over everything good and everything we enjoy in this world. Moments and glimpses of great pleasure, but, but it's always just hanging back there. The passage of time, the approach of death, the reality of death intruding upon us. But that's not so in the resurrection. The joy there never subsides. It's never interrupted. The shadow is completely removed. Now, wow, I mean, we could talk a lot more about that. There's places in the Bible that gives us and helps us fill out our picture, if not giving us a complete description, but helps us fill out an even bigger picture of what an eternal resurrected state is going to be like. But for this passage, the takeaway is this. Jesus says the resurrection is true, and Jesus says the resurrection is great. But there is something that's really important to talk about before we finish. Something that's really important that you need to make sure that you have straight about the resurrection. And that is, how do you get this resurrection? 
And how can you be sure that you have it? Right? That's, the, that's the purpose, the intention of the last bullet in the, the outline. How, how do we obtain the resurrection? And this is very important, something where we need to be very clear. When Jesus is talking about the resurrection, he's not describing those who are not his followers here. He speaks a lot about what happens after death for those who do not follow him. But the point he's making here and the people that he's specifically addressing when he talks about the sons of the resurrection are those who are his followers. He's talking about what we would call Christians, though the term wouldn't have been commonly used when Jesus was alive. He's talking about those who are sons of God, to use his language, sons of the resurrection, to use his terminology. Now, sons does not mean that he's just talking about men here, but the sons in that culture were the ones who became the heirs of the father's inheritance. They carried on the identity of the family, and that's that term, what that term means. Whenever you see the phrase son of followed by something, it's a shorthand way of saying this is what is an identity marker for them. Right? This is what they're inclined to. This is, this is what defines them, what their father is. Could be good or bad, a son of destruction or a son of God. But it forces us to ask the question, who am I a son of? Who's my father? And really, the most important point, if this is the family of the resurrection, is how do we get into that family? If, if I want to be a son of the resurrection, if I want to be a son of God, if I want to be an adopted son of this father, how do I get into this family? How do I attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead? And Jesus says the ones who attain to the resurrection are the ones, verse 35, who are considered worthy. They're considered worthy. Now, don't, don't ever trust my Greek, but the commentators will tell you that the phrase considered worthy here is actually just one Greek word. And it's a Greek word that means to be counted worthy, to be made worthy. Now note it's in the passive tense, not something we do. It's something that is done to us. In other words, it's a status that we receive by faith. It's not a status that we earn or a status that we achieve. And think about what this would have been saying to the audience that Jesus was addressing. In other words, you aren't born into worthiness like the Sadducees might have assumed. You don't earn your worthiness with legal obedience like the Pharisees might have assumed. You don't earn your obedience with your education like the scribes or the teachers of the law might have thought. You don't earn your worthiness with political action like the zealots might have thought. Your worthiness doesn't come from any of those things. It comes only from the worthiness of Jesus credited to you and received by faith. To all who receive him, John writes in John chapter 1, for all who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You don't become a son of God. You don't become a son of the resurrection by being born into a particular human family, as loving, as wonderful as that family might be. You become a son of God by being born again into his family, adopted not by your merit and not by your effort, but by delight and faith in God, considering you, the one who considers you to be worthy. But you say, wait a minute, I'm not worthy. And I'd say, don't worry about that. You're right, you're not. You're not worthy. And you say, well, that doesn't make me feel any better. How can I be considered worthy if I'm not worthy? And the answer is the guy standing right in front of the Sadducees. And the answer is the guy who came to Jerusalem for this very reason. Because Jesus is the only one 
who is the worthy Son of God. The only one who, who, the only worthy human being who ever walked the earth. And in the death that he was preparing to die later that week, the death that he was going to be experiencing just days later, he would trade his record of worthiness for our record of unworthiness. And in that, we can become adopted as sons of the resurrection. Right? He would experience the eternal death that our unworthiness deserves so that we could be considered worthy. And so all who put their faith and trust in that transaction receive the title Son of the Resurrection, become an heir to the, the inheritance of eternal life. Do you believe that? You say, I think I could, I could believe that maybe if actually, I think I could believe in the resurrection, you say, if someone actually rose from the dead. Maybe if I saw it happen, if someone came back from the dead and, and proved that it's actually real. Well, you know, Jesus knew that you might ask that question. He's got you covered. It's why Jesus died, why he took the punishment for your unworthiness, and he didn't just stay dead. It's why he rose. It's why we gather on the first day of the week to celebrate this Jesus. Because his resurrection came first. He's the firstborn of the resurrected. And just as he died in sacrifice, he rose and he lives and he leads the way for the resurrection. You still have questions about this? Ask them. But unlike the Sadducees, ask them with integrity, with a desire to know the answer, not just to win an argument, and trust that Jesus can speak perfectly to you and to the questions that you have. To me, that's one of the, we don't have time to go into it, but that's one of the primary takeaways of Jesus citing this passage from Exodus chapter 3. Jesus was being extremely gracious in the way that he answered the Sadducees. He knew that the Sadducees only believed the words of the Hebrew Scripture, so specifically the Torah. And that's exactly where he takes them. He could have taken them to other places. He could have made other statements. But he takes them to the, words, to the, to, to the place where they claimed to trust. He said, I'll speak your language. And he points out how the verb tenses and what God says to, to Moses, I am, not I was, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? The God of the living, not the God of the the dead. He shows how that is the, is the proof, the demonstration that, 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 that there is a resurrection. Now that might not be, that argument might not be the most convincing argument to you, but it was perfect for them. Verse 39 says, the scribes thought Jesus had spoken well. Right? Their minds were blown. Wow. Jesus knows how to speak perfectly to your heart. Ask him about the resurrection to make it clear to you. And like he demonstrated to the Sadducees, Right? Search the scriptures. See what he has to say. Seek the answer with your heart and impress upon everyone that you know the importance of asking and answering this question. Because no matter, no matter what you may achieve in this world, this question about what's next is of primary importance because nothing in this world will matter if you gain everything there is here but lose what is to follow. In 1000 AD, 186 years after the death of Emperor Charlemagne, of the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, the, the current uh, Roman, uh, Holy Roman Emperor, Otto, reopened Charlemagne's tomb. And in the midst of all the, the finery that was buried around him in this tomb, all these riches and jewels and priceless treasures, there was the skeleton of Charlemagne, so the story goes, seated on a throne still wearing his crown and in his lap there was a bible and his finger supposedly a bony finger rested on mark chapter 8 verse 36 
which says, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Now, I think it's true, historically, that Otto III ordered Charlemagne's tomb to be reopened in 1000 A.D., and apparently there was a lot of treasure and riches in the Bible that was, was in there. Whether or not he had his bony finger on Mark 8.36, I don't think anyone could ever prove. But suppose it actually was that way. wonder what answer Charlemagne would have given. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What answer would you give? It matters. Because our God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You <clears throat> that You go ahead of us into the resurrection, that You consider us worthy by taking and assuming our unworthiness. Lord, I pray that this would be a question that all of us would ask and seek to answer and remind ourselves of again and again and again. Lord, it's easy to brush it aside, say, oh, sure, I believe this. I believe in the resurrection. Even I believe in Jesus. But Lord, practically then we go out and we live our lives in a way that betrays the fact that there is a resurrection. And so we seek to gain eternal life and we seek to pack it all into this life here. And then we find that it fails us. Lord, in the midst of our day-to-day reminders that the promises of this world will fail us, let those things drive us to the hope of the eternal resurrection that comes only through Jesus. All right, it's in His name we pray. Amen.